Hello, and welcome to The Roundtable, a Next Generation Politics podcast. Next Generation Politics is a cross-partisan nonprofit building a movement of young people committed to building bridges across various divides. I'm Madeline, and this week, Divya, Enika, Isaiah, Olivia, and I spoke with Susan Lerner, the passionate and inspiring executive director of Common Cause New York. We discussed voting rights and wrongs. Our conversation was simultaneously sobering, acknowledging the many problems that are playing out in relation to this year's election, and inspiring, celebrating the power of the vote and the heroism on display by the many, many millions of people who have committed to not letting the pandemic get in the way of our democratic power. Wherever you fall on the political spectrum, The next week, and possibly well beyond, is likely to be nerve-wracking. We're particularly happy to have you join us this episode, and looking forward to working together to make the most out of what lies ahead. Hi, my name is Inika Kodestane, and I'm a junior from New Jersey. Um, I'm also the co-editor-in-chief for the Next Generation Politics blog, and I'm looking forward to understanding what this election is going to mean for future elections and how we can use this time to learn. My name is Isaiah Taylor. I'm currently a high school senior, and in addition, I'm also a lead civic fellow for Next Generation Politics. And uh, I guess something that I'm most interested in uh, in terms of speaking to you today is to uh, discover to what extent the government is at fault for uh, these backed up polling sites given the increased voter attendance in these elections. Hi, my name is Madeline Mays. I am a high school sophomore from Brooklyn, New York, and I'm really passionate about um, government and um, how that relates to the daily lives of Gen Z and what that means for our future. Hi, my name is Olivia. I am a senior from New York City. And in addition to being a podcaster, I am a lead civic fellow for NGP and also the national director of outreach and engagement. Um, And I'm particularly passionate about finding ways to bridge partisan divides, whether through conversation or through more concrete legislation. Well, I'm Susan Lerner. I'm the executive director of Common Cause New York. And we lead the election protection effort. Election protection is the largest nonpartisan voter assistance program in the country. Over a hundred organizations get together and recruit volunteers and legally and staff, let me put it differently, and staff a national hotline, the one 866-R-VOTE hotline for with legal personnel to answer questions the voters have. And I'm really excited to be here because my passion is opening up government to as many people as possible, making it more understandable and holding government accountable, making it more responsive to the people that it represents. So having the opportunity to speak with you, to hear what's on your minds about this upcoming incredibly important election is just um, really my pleasure. Yeah. Um, We're so lucky to have such an expert on on these issues, especially because it couldn't be more timely, right, with early voting ending and and regular voting happening on November 3rd. Um, So just gratitude overall. I think what we wanted to start with is just framing the issue, right? 
we are having a crisis in voting in the United States um, at this point in time. And when I say crisis in voting, I don't just mean in voter turnout, but also in voter suppression in the lines we've been seeing in the newspaper across the country and more. So could you help us just frame the issue, especially during this year's general election and some of the most um, important um, and pressing matters to you as it pertains to the election? Absolutely. I mean, the history of voting in our country is really anomalous for a society which says that it's a democracy. And it's a history of expansion followed by contraction with more expansion followed by contraction. So we know that voting in our country started with just white property owners um, and that it took a civil war to free people of color and to give them the right to vote. Women didn't get the right to vote until a hundred years ago. Um, and in every single expansion of voting, there was a pushback. And we know that the civil rights era in the 60s was essential to really actualizing the promise that people of color would be able to be full citizens and exercise their right to vote. And right now, what we're seeing is an appalling era, yet again of contraction, an attempt for elected officials um, to pick who will be permitted to vote and to try and put their thumbs on the scale by eliminating voters, by making it harder to vote. Um, the entire process of registration in our country was developed to discourage people from voting. In other nations, when you become of age, you are automatically on the voting rolls. You don't have to jump through hoops and find the right form and put in the right information. You're a citizen, you get to vote. In the United States, we need to evolve to the point where our elections are open and accessible to everyone. And they need to be fully funded and they need to be well thought out. And the problem is that Americans thinking we're exceptional somehow have starved our elections of resources. We haven't done a good job. And now that's coming back at us, making it more difficult for people to vote. But what's amazing to me is the extraordinary passion and outpouring of enthusiasm that we are seeing. That a unintended consequence of the people who are trying to suppress the vote is that they have made voters so angry about the fact that they are trying to discourage the vote, that if anything uh, has resulted, they have made people absolutely more passionate about voting. So the long lines in Georgia, the long lines in Texas, where there's been deliberate um, limits on where you can vote and how you can vote have resulted in lines that are sometimes eight, 10, 12 hours long. We are seeing long lines here in New York, but it's more a question of volume than it is any deliberate attempt to suppress the vote. Um, and that is simply the fact that nobody expected people to start lining up to vote early at 5.30 in the morning this past Saturday. We thought people were gonna take advantage of it, but frankly, those of us who helped to pass early voting we're most concerned that people didn't know about it and they wouldn't use it. So we for sure did not expect to see a thousand people outside the Brooklyn Museum when early voting started at 10 a.m. 
And when you start 500 to 1,000 people behind before you even open your doors, it's really hard to catch up. So that really tells us that we need many more early voting locations for presidential elections. And we need to, be, to make sure that institutions like the Metropolitan Museum, the Museum of Art, um, all of the museums in Manhattan should be early voting locations. We need more physical locations for people to be able to vote early because people understand how important this election is and they are bound and determined to have their voices heard at the ballot box because that's what voting is. That's your voice. That is your way to really influence the future because if you don't vote, somebody else is deciding your future for you. I think the sentiments that you just shared uh, kind of mirror the essay that I wrote back in 2018. Sanda reminded me of this, but um, as a freshman, I won first place in the League of Women Voters Why Vote Contest. And I feel like nice. we just shared a lot of the same kind of tidbits and that was just really funny to me. But um, I think when I wrote that essay back in 2018, we had midterm elections. And I feel like um, the sort of public perception of voting has definitely changed this year because so many people have gone out to vote. And I feel like although voter suppression is a big issue, that's undoubtable. Um, I think something that I was interested in is how people are going to react to their votes and how they're being counted. Because I know that there's speculation on how voting is gonna be counted after the ballot is cast. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts about what that means and how people are going to actually understand whether their vote is gonna be counted at all. Because I know that with everything going on in the Supreme Court and like, voting by mail and they're gonna be coming in through different locations and different, different times, how that's going to affect our democracy this year. So I think one of the reasons why we're seeing such a huge outpouring of uh, early voters is that people have exactly that concern. Um, and while we're seeing a much larger percentage of people who are taking advantage of vote by mail or absentee voting, I think there's been a shift in the last month or two from people who for the primary voted absentee and now they're coming in to vote in person because of the disinformation and the propaganda which is being uh, disseminated, I'm sorry to say, from the highest levels of our federal government, creating um, unnecessary fears and confusion about how our system works. One of the things about the American system that makes it sometimes clunkier, but in some ways safer, is that it's very decentralized. Every state gets to decide how people vote and how the votes are counted. And, and actually, it's the counties that have the control of that. So what that means is that it's a lot harder to jigger or to hack our elections because we have so many different entities and places where things are going on. And in actuality, our process for counting votes has an extraordinary number of checks and cross checks. And as a result, it's not fast. And that often confuses people where the 24-7 news cycle means that people expect to have an answer by midnight on election night. 
Well, if you really look at the process of voting, it is the process of counting is heavily regulated with a lot of checks and balances, a lot of steps along the way where things have to be um, examined, uh, they have to be countered, they have to be checked, they have to be recorded. And there are a lot of steps to be sure that the votes are being counted. People think that we have the result on election night in 2016. Well, we knew who the apparent winner was, but the actual official results weren't certified by any counties or any states for days and weeks afterwards. So with the extraordinary and I believe really positive explosion in voting by mail and, and absentee voting, we have to adjust our expectations. We're not going to know necessarily who the projected winner is, because that's what the TV networks do. They project the winner. They don't know for sure. Well, we may not even be able to project the winner on election night if we have a lot of people who vote by mail and vote absentee. And that's a good thing because the procedures that are in place to check our absentee ballots and to open and vote them are very, very detailed and um, are really designed to be sure that the count is accurate and that eligible votes are counted. And people don't understand how detailed our election laws are. It's not a question of just putting a stack of ballots out, letting people come in, and then you count them. Every step along the way, there are controls for numbers, there are controls for who has access. And if we speed up this process, that's when we begin to have problems. So an important message for, for you to take out to young voters is, hey, take a deep breath. It's gonna take time. To get an accurate count, we need to take the time to get it right. So don't worry if you don't have an absolute answer on election night, that's a good thing. A fast count makes me nervous. I think that your perspective is very interesting and kind of unorthodox and I resonate with your opinions uh, based on, you know, having a fast count uh, versus, you know, having a drawn out process trying to really verify uh, that the election results are correct. So my next, well, what my question is, let me read it. How do you think the differences in state voting management management affects voter suppression? You know, this is in terms of, you know, flip states. Like I think Texas is projects to be a flip state in 2024. And there are very, there are a lot of flip states in this election. So I'm just wondering if your opinion on that. Well, I think it's, it really is a challenge. Okay. Cause we are seeing the change in political control at the different state levels really impacts how the state's uh, officials handle elections. So we've seen very overt voter suppression in Georgia, in Texas, in Ohio, in Kansas. And that's based solely on who the election officials are and who's in control. And it is a sad statement that right now our country seems to be in a situation where there is one party that is in favor of voter suppression and another party who wants to have the maximum number of eligible voters be able to vote. If this has become politicized is a scandal and a shame. This is not politics, this is democracy. 
and every elected official should be doing everything they can to ensure that our elections are accessible and secure and fair and that every eligible voter knows for a certainty that they are casting a secure vote that will be accurately counted. That's where we need to be. And the, we should not have a difference in terms of which political party is control in control of which state. And I am concerned about the way in which our elections are being controlled and suppressed now by the federal courts and the Supreme Court. And that is a concern. So I am hoping that the large turnout means that it will be extremely difficult for anybody to mess with the result and to create confusion about what the election results are. Thank you for that, Ms. Lerner. Um, I'm Divya Ganesan. I'm from the Bay Area, California, and I'm an NGP podcaster and also a co-founder of Real Talk, which is an organization to help youth um, engage in civil discourse just like this. Um, I'm wondering kind of on a separate note, I've been reflecting recently on uh, our country's experience in 2000 with the Bush versus Gore election and thinking a little bit about the similarities between this election and back then. Uh, specifically about the Electoral College. I'm wondering what your opinion is. Obviously, you see the vote as a way for the citizens to have a direct voice in the presidency. I think you could argue that based on different state laws with the Electoral College, that's not actually what's happening. Um, so I'm wondering what's your opinion on that and how that could play into this election? So Common Cause is a supporter of something called national popular vote which is a way to ensure that the winner of the presidential election is also the winner of the popular vote without amending the constitution. Um, because frankly, we believe in direct democracy. We believe that the president should be the, the person who received the largest number of votes <laughs> universally and not through the Electoral College. The Electoral College is a vestige of a time long past, and we should not be in a situation where a small minority of states and voters get to decide the results of elections for the much greater majority of people. So ultimately, I believe that an interstate compact where states agree that if they, once you have a sufficient number of states who sign on to this agreement, that they will all cast their electoral college votes for the winner of the public popular vote. And that is something which could be instituted right away once you've got a sufficient number of states who've signed on. So you need states that would make up 270 electoral or 271 electoral college votes to agree to the interstate compact, which is the national popular vote. And then the winner would be guaranteed to be the winner of the national popular vote. And then if that seems to work well, which we think it would, we then can look towards amending our constitution and doing away with the electoral college. But there's an interim step that we could arrive at much more quickly than amending the constitution. And that's the national popular vote compact.
Yeah, I, I think that's fascinating and something we don't hear enough about, um, at least through mainstream media. Yeah. Um, I, I just wanted to follow up on, on something before I ask my question, your response to Isaiah about how voter suppression and, you know, voter accessibility, you know, registering more voters has seemed to become a partisan issue, right? Yeah. When it's not, on a most fundamental oh. level, every citizen has a right to vote, and that should be promoted across party lines. Um, and I think that's a really important thing that your organization is, is championing. We um, are strictly nonpartisan. We are yeah. not in the business of uh, favoring one candidate over another. We don't endorse candidates and we exist in, in the election protection program and common cause from its beginning on a nonpartisan basis to assist every voter, um, regardless of party or who, what candidate they favor. Yeah. Um, so, so on that note, in, in a similar way, right, like young people like us, I, I know most, peop most people on this call um, and many listeners of our podcast actually won't have the ability to, to cast our vote um, this, this coming week. And I think because young people don't have the right to vote yet, they often feel powerless in, in this system, right? They don't have the opportunity to show their voice, have their voice heard directly in an electoral democracy yet. Um, but yet, I think our work is important um, in this fight, you know, in the battle for election protection. So what is your advice to young people like us to, to continue fighting for election protection, even though we don't have the right to vote yet? Well, there are two things. One, you all have family and friends who can vote. And we are way past the time where voters should be sitting on the sidelines, hoping it all comes out okay, because it doesn't really matter. It really matters. We've learned the hard way. It matters who our president is. It matters who our governor is. It matters who our mayor is. Our Literally, our health and our livelihoods depend on our leaders and whether they are effective leaders or not. And so family and friends, helping them figure out their voting plan, saying, hey, I want to see what it's like. Will you take me with you when you vote? is absolutely a very positive and effective thing that you can do. Because I guarantee that there are at least three to 10 people you know um, who can vote in your immediate family and circle. And unfortunately, two or three of them probably haven't voted before. The key is helping them make a voting plan. What we found is if people visualize, okay, I'm gonna vote early, I'm gonna vote early on Thursday, I'm gonna go there at one o'clock. I'm gonna go with my best friend. We're gonna vote, then we're gonna have coffee. They're much more likely to vote. The second thing is you do not have to be a registered voter in order to be a volunteer for election protection. You can actually help on election day, on during early voting by volunteering and being assigned to a busy polling place, helping solve problems for voters. So you can get very, very directly involved. I think that that's a great message for our audience and for our peers. And for people who currently can vote or people in the future, I think that this election year is definitely a kind of like a turning point. I think that there's more opportunities to be able to vote, which is wonderful thing that uh, we now have the opportunity to vote from home, which is something that has not, it could not have been uh, thought of at all in the past. 
but I'm as I'm thinking about it, it seems like such a wonderful thing to have all, all of these opportunities. But I'm also thinking that it could be a struggle for people, especially since now there are so many options and so many things to be confused over. And that there are so many differences between states and neighborhoods even in regards to voting, which it's kind of like a blessing and a curse at the same time, having so many opportunities. Um, so I'm just, I guess, do you think weighing like the pros and cons of early voting, absentee ballot, do you think it's better to have all of these opportunities for voters or worse? Oh, for sure. <laughs> I think it absolutely is an advantage. I trust voters. I trust voters to figure out for themselves what works for them. And that's why we talk about making a voting plan, okay? Um, a voting plan allows you to weigh your options, right? Do I want to vote absentee or by mail? How's that going to work for me? Am I nervous about the mail not getting there on time? So I'm going to have to ask for my absentee ballot far in advance and fill it out maybe earlier than I'm comfortable. Well, so maybe I'm not going to do that, but I can vote early. And my state has a 30-day early voting time period. Uh, 30 days feels too far away from election day. So maybe I'll wait until 10 days before the election and then I'll vote early. Or you know what? I really love election day. It makes me feel really uh, very warmly to go on the traditional day and see everybody among my neighbors who are voting at the same time. That's what a voting plan does. It allows you to weigh the pros and cons and figure out what works best for you. So my husband and I sat down last week and we made our voting plans and he picked a different way to vote than I did. But that is the advantage of the plan. And I do wanna say one thing. What really struck me after the 2016 presidential election is how many adults came to me and said, you know, I didn't really pay attention to our democracy. I didn't really pay attention to what happens with voting because I figured with the United States, it's all okay. I'm busy, I'm working, my kids are in school, my mom isn't feeling too well. And I, it just wasn't anything that I thought I was responsible for. So my message to you as young activists and to the people listening to this podcast is don't make that same mistake, okay? That the older generations made to think that democracy just runs on autopilot. Well, if it runs on autopilot, it is gonna run off the road. It requires us to be sure that it's working right in the way that we think is necessary for our interests as voters and for our country's interests. And that means getting engaged now and staying engaged, demanding that there are improvements in how we vote and not putting up with voter suppression as, oh, that's just the way we do it now. No, that's unacceptable. And we are each individually engaged to be sure that our democracy is gonna be a true democracy and it survives. And that only happens when we put the time and effort into it to be sure that it's working. Okay, Ms. Lerner, what you're saying about 
us running democracy is so like so resonant. Um, I like the metaphor of democracy doesn't run by itself, but it was ran by us, the people being engaged and actively taking a part in what it is. Um, and I think that makes us the active citizens that make democracy what it is. Um, and I know Inigo has a closing question to ask, but thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I think I was just curious on how exactly we can use the lessons from this year for the next election that we have. And I was um, curious to hear your thoughts on how we can use this as a learning experience. I know that no election should be considered like a beta type test, but I feel like that's how it's really going this year. And I love to hear how, you know, your cause and your work will be shifting around from what you've learned this year and maybe how things plan on going in the same direction? So I think there's a real opportunity after this election to make some significant changes to how we run and administer our elections. Being sure that the people who are responsible for running our elections are responsible to the voters and not to the political parties. Um, and that we are providing the resources and the necessary uh, planning to be sure that our elections keep up with our 21st century expectations. In some ways, you know, it's counterintuitive that the cutting edge, most secure technology for our elections are paper ballots, but that's true. But there's a lot of technology around the paper ballots that we need to upgrade and that we need to think through and that we need to have the public own, not a limited number of private corporations that don't have any incentive to really innovate our election processes. So I think the interest and the outrage about the suppression gives us an extraordinary opportunity to recast and advance how we run our elections here in the United States. And I'm really excited to work on that once we are um, successfully, I hope, through this general election. Um, and we hopefully can knit the country back together and strengthen our democracy at the ballot box. That's all for today, friends. I'm editor Sarita Adabala signing off for all of us at Next Generation Politics. Please check out our website at www.nextgenpolitics.org to find out more about our work. And please recommend us to your civic-minded friends, or to your friends you'd like to become more civic-minded. Thanks for listening.